A very good evening to you all. Um, my name is Tony Travers. Uh, I'm uh, an associate dean at the School of Public Policy here at the LSE, uh, and I'm uh, really here th to chair this evening. Uh, the evening is on the future of Anglo-German relations. It says beyond Brexit, so it's not only about Brexit. Let's try and uh, be a bit of both. Uh, and uh, the hashtag is hashtag LSE Brexit, and our speakers, I'll say a little bit about a, in a moment. You'll notice those of you who are expecting uh, Sir Malcolm Rifkin, that Sir Malcolm is not with us this evening. That's because he's unwell. So very kindly, uh, my colleague Ian Begg, Professor Ian Begg, has uh, stood in at the last moment. Now, um, the way the evening will progress is that each of the speakers, who I'll introduce in a moment, will speak for um, seven to ten minutes, and then we'll have a little discussion here on the platform, and then I will open the questioning up so there'll be plenty of opportunity for everybody to ask a question or make a comment, short one, I hope, um, a little bit later on. Now, just... Um, I should also say the evening is a co-production, rather a busy co-production of the School of Public Policy, the Darendorf Forum, and LSE Ideas, so three separate parts of the school working together on this important issue. Now, I said a moment ago uh, that, um, and I'll introduce the speakers in a second, the, this is a, an immediate period immediately after the United Kingdom formally left the European Union Friday at um, 2300 or midnight, Friday, Saturday in Europe. And against that backdrop, this is an important time for the UK and for all the countries of Europe and for the EU27 as a new relationship is established. It's the end of one series of relationships and the beginning of new ones. And I think uh, there are very few people in the UK or the EU who don't wish these relations to function and to flourish effectively hereafter, but nobody equally pretends that there won't be a period of rebuilding and rethinking and, you know, trying to look for opportunities where people thought there were threats and try to downplay some of the threats. So it's an important moment of resetting, not just for the UK, but for the whole of the continent of Europe. And as many as have observed, whatever your views in the UK about Brexit, uh, Britain remains geographically and in many, many, many other ways European. So that is a sort of uh, widely understood issue. Anyway, uh, I want to introduce our speakers this evening. And uh, in all, I'm going to go through their entire biographies, but um, in the order they will speak. So Dr. Norbert Rutgen has been chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the German Bundestag since 2014, and from 2009 to 2012 was a federal minister for the environment, nature, conservation, nuclear safety, and has been a member of the German parliament since 1994. Uh, Baroness Pauline Neville-Jones is a conservative member of the House of Lords, sits on the Joint Security for National Security Strategy, and has been member of a number of committees in the House of Lords and was David Cameron's national security advisor and former minister for security and counterterrorism. Ian Begg uh, is professorial research fellow and co-director of the Durandorf Forum and his main research is on the political e economy of European integration and EU economic governance and Ian is a major participant in conferences here and around uh, Europe and indeed around the world about 
the UK and Europe. So uh, I'm going to ask each of them to speak, either from there or here, whichever you feel more comfortable with, but uh, beginning with Dr. Norbert, Norbert Rotkin. Professor Travers, thank you so much for the introduction. Dear colleagues in the panel, ladies and gentlemen, uh, of course, uh, it's always a, not only a, a pleasure but an honor to be invited to the theater. So thank you very much for joining uh, this exchange on, on the future, on the future relationship we are, we are going to have. Um, it's only for one reason why I want to tell again, as I've done over the course of the last years time and again, why I have opposed vigorously Brexit. It's, it's just a short mentioning of that, not uh, for the cause of looking backwards, but for another reason. I've opposed Brexit because I have seen it as contrary to the law of geography, to the geopolitics and the geopolitical revolution, which uh, has started round about five years ago, and contrary to our shared values. My message today is after Brexit has become a reality, that nothing of these arguments has changed. They still exist. They are also valid today. And my conclusion now is that it's not the time to look backwards. Of course, I, 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 joined, uh, I joined a dinner on Friday night, and of course it was a sad moment. We, were, we did not come together, did not gather because uh, of, of uh, exchanging our, our sadness on, on this event. It was by accident that this, uh, this group of people were together. And, of course, it was the mood of sadness then. But I think uh, we may, may preserve this feeling. But now for politicians and for citizens, it's now about to shape the future. And let us keep in mind what we thought to be so essential in opposing Brexit. At least this, these were my main arguments. Uh, to, to be the foundation of shaping the future relationship. So I have to say, the rhetoric of the day, in a way, different, but both in London and in Brussels, is more, I would say, a kind of tactical rhetoric, a negotiation rhetoric, underlining the differences, uh, outsetting the red lines, uh, the default option, going away from the table. In a way, I have a certain understanding that it is a kind of negotiation ritual which is exercised. I can understand that there is partially a sense of euphoria and that politicians address their electorate and their voters also sometimes by chest beating, by the way of chest beating. But I want to strike a different tone. Why shouldn't we talk, why shouldn't we start talking about the potential of our relationship? Why shouldn't we start 
to look for positive perspectives. We haven't, perhaps I haven't opted for this reality, but now it is the reality. And the job for politicians and others who are in charge of public responsibility is to make the best of what has evolved and emerged as the reality. And there is potential. This is the reason why my colleague Tom Tugendhat, chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee of the House of Commons, and I have today published in the German daily FAZ and the Times the proposal to work out a German-British Treaty of Friendship, which is not seen in competition to the EU-Britain negotiations on trade and other and different issues and, and, and areas. But there is a potential to have a flourishing, productive, constructive, positive relationship between our countries. In exchanging people, bringing together people. Uh, in youth exchange, pupils exchange, students exchange, working together of universities, which is left to the state uh, competence uh, um, uh, also in the post-Brexit era. And I want primarily make the case for a closer cooperation in the field of security and foreign policy, because the geopolitical unraveling, the rupture, the ending in the cause and the fundamental cause of American foreign policy through the president of this country by giving up the unique capacity of this country to shape international order voluntarily by a new assertive aggressive Russian foreign policy by a China which is under Xi Jinping not the China it was before which is uh, technologically advancing, which is increasingly suppressive at home and projecting power abroad. And have a look to the Middle East, where conflict is rising, where we have come extremely close to the abyss of war, which would have quite easily and certainly then spilled over to Europe. This is all a, a geopolitical chaos which is threatening our security as European societies, which is challenging our values and our will to live our life in a free and tolerant way. I am absolutely sure that to tackle these challenges is beyond the power of the, na of the European nation-state. And unfortunately, I have to be realistic on the capacity of the EU27 to act, as a, to, to act uh, in a, in, in, on, on a common basis, in a common approach, and to pursue a significant uh, common foreign policy. Because the divides within Europe are so deep, too deep that um, we were able to act uh, uh, together. So, to but nevertheless, European action is urgently needed in order to address and to respond to the threats and challenges I have tried to briefly characterize and describe. So, to create and forge a European format 
in order to act on behalf of European interests and values is essentially needed. Why not further develop the E3 format, which has been a successful case and format regarding the nuclear agreement? Of course, I know that uh, the new American policy has thwarted this agreement by imposing sanctions with secondary effects. But nevertheless, the case that Germany, France, and Britain have worked together and have, have achieved significant uh, uh, success and, achieve, and, and, and accomplishments is a fact. Uh, and coming together, joining forces, uh, select foreign policy challenges uh, in order to forge a group of the able and willing on behalf of European common interests is something which is on the cards and has to be done and which is possible and needed. Such a group, of course, would not, would not uh, understand itself as an exclusive group. It should be open to others. But what we need is to overcome the paralysis by just starting to act uh, in, in favor of our values and, and, uh, and, and interests. So my, my prime message is we should not indulge in looking backwards, but we should soberly analyze what is possible today. We should see the potential um, uh, of shaping a positive relationship. My last remark... I have perhaps expressed some understanding for tactical rhetoric and so on, but there's also a danger. If over months, as perhaps is realistically foreseeable until summer, the negative, assertive, principled, and not pragmatic rhetoric will prevail publicly, there is also a danger that this rhetoric will become so entrenched that to shift from rhetoric to pragmatic solutions may perhaps not be that easily done in a face-saving way. So let us be cautious to only talk publicly negatively now uh, in, 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 a, in an assertive uh, way, which is really a danger and could then turn out to be a, a liability for doing what is possible and what is necessary to shape fruitful bilateral relations because everything which was at the heart of our relationship, particularly in the recent years, geopolitical threats, European way of living more and more the style of a minority, the rule of law, democracy is under pressure, both from outside and from inside. Racism, anti-Semitism are are seeing a, a new boost in our societies. So there is every reason to seize the moment of coming together in a friendly way and determined to make a positive and peaceful difference in our time. Thank you so much. Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, I found what Norbert had to say very, very reassuring and, and uh, heartening to the spirit. Uh, there is a, a desire in Germany to wish to 
continue the relationship with this country on as full uh, and as expansive and as valuable a basis uh, as possible. Ah, uh, and that is that on? Uh, does it? Can you hear me? Is it? Yeah. Uh, right angle. <laughs> I, I won't wave it around. Um, <laughs> but to, to start again. Um, I found what Norbert had to say very, very reassure, reassuring and comforting in the sense that there is you know, a strong voice uh, in Berlin uh, that wants to see a, continuing of a continuation of a strong and positive uh, relationship uh, with this country. He's right, I think, to say that the next 12 months uh, may stand as something of a barrier uh, and a difficulty insofar as I fear, I fear that there are going to be some quite tough and harsh words uh, said across the, across the divide and obviously in connection with the working out the future relationship between the UK and the EU. And I'm going to say something about that in a moment. But I just want to say something about bilateral relations between countries. It's a, um, I'm in a form of diplomat and it's, it's um, a fallacy, I think, that, you know, that we have a tendency to think that bilateral uh, relations are what passes between embassies or passes between governments. Um, and you might, if you take it more widely, it's also the bilateral trade relationship. And all of those things are very important, and I'll come back to them. But for an awful lot of people, you know, Germany playing England is a lot more important and a lot more interesting than any of these so-called technical things that we do. And I see absolutely no reason why the sporting relationship, the cultural relationship, uh, and indeed the educational relationship actually shouldn't continue to be a very vibrant part of our, of, of our, our uh, bilateral dealings. Um, indeed, I would hope that one of the... One of the the backdrop, the political backdrop, might spur those who are involved in that kind of exchange actually to make you know, even fuller use thereof. Uh, and the idea that uh, Tom Tugendhat and, and uh, Norbert are putting together seems to me to be a very good thing and could encompass quite a lot of topics uh, which would help, help actually increase uh, those aspects of the relationship which are not subject to, to um, outside uh, potentially counter influence. Um, having said that I think there are things that we can do together, I do want to look at some of the things that might get in the way, which I think we have to be uh, realistic about. Um, I think that it's hard to see uh, in the short term at any rate that the, the bilateral relationship will trump some of the things that we're going to have to deal with in the context of EU-UK. Uh, um, and in particular, I think uh, no, the trade relationship is going to weigh uh, fairly heavily. Um, I'm actually going to give you two scenarios because I don't think that it's necessarily there's only one outcome in all of this. Uh, indeed, part of the problem of discussing this relationship at the moment is it's very, very hard to see you know, where things are going to go. And there are a number of possibilities. The one I would describe as being the negative possibility is, is um, that we attempt to trade and we attempt to have a commercial relationship which uh, somehow rests on our existing patterns of economic and commercial activity with the underpinnings actually pulled away. 
because that is not going to be very successful. I think it's undoubtedly the case that some of the, some of the uh, trading that we do, uh, and we are two nations that are you know, engaged very much in, the, in, in, in exchange of, of, of manufacturing goods, and component parts for this country, those are going to be affected. They, I think there's no two ways about it. Those are going to be affected by both tariff and non-tariff barriers. So I think there are going to be losses. Um, and I think it's, and Norbert will correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, people like David Davis um, you know, peddled the theory at the beginning that you know, the BDI, the German Confederation of Industry, you know, would, would rush the barricades and say, of course, we've got to, you know, we've got to put this right and help the no, help overcome these barriers and change EU, EU uh, laws. I think that's nonsense. I think that's nonsense. Um, you know, uh, the head of the German Federation of the Car Industry, this man, said, and I think he's, this spells the truth, which is that the maintenance of the customs union and the single market are the most important thing. That means you're not going to start bending it you know, for, for uh, a departing country. So I think we are, we must, I think, accept that there are going to be, there are going to be uh, losses. But if you look further out over the next 10 years, I'm not so sure that it will be such a negative picture. And this is, again, on the economic side, and I'll come to some of the others in a minute. Um, I think despite the fact that, you know, the Prime Minister seems to want to choose a path which is going to inevitably result in, in divergence and argument. I think if you look at the way in which uh, our respective economies are likely to develop over the next 10 to 15 years, I think we are entering a new uh, commercial and economic era. Um, if you look at... If you look at um, the kind of technologies that we're developing, and these are global technologies. It seems to me that, and this crucially depends on uh, the UK performing, and I would say a lot of our future, I mean, clearly our future depends on how well we perform, but our relationship, I think, in particular, when it comes to the European Union with Germany, is going to depend upon how this, this, how this country performs economically. And if we do push ahead... As the government, government promises, and there's going to be no question, will it, will it keep to its promises of increasing the national income that goes into research, uh, of, of focusing our activities on uh, data, on robotics, on AI, on the biosciences, all areas in which we are strong, strong scientifically, not always so good at exploitation, but if we continue on that agenda, we have potentially a partner, I think. We have a number of partners in Europe, obviously, but an obvious partner in Germany. And the question, of course, will be, will this, will this kind of industry you know, still be hampered by, by uh, the barriers of, of single market uh, and, and customs union, or will they, because they're global, in a sense, uh, not suffer and certainly not be built on that basis? Now, that's a big for me, a big question mark. But I do see a possibility, actually, of simply the, the passage and the change in the nature of what our, in, what our, our industries and our, what our country does. 
uh, of actually palliating, to some extent at any rate, uh, the disadvantages of the, uh, the present situation. Um, I said I thought that uh, research was uh, research is very important. I think that brings me to what uh, Norbert was saying about uh, the relationship between universities. I think the government has got the message from the universities about the importance of having the right visa regime and the right, uh, the right encouragement for researchers, teachers, students to come to this country. And one of the things that I'm less worried about uh, than many of the other things on the horizon. Um, and I think that, uh, I hope that, therefore, we will continue to, to have a very vibrant and international, uh, including European, uh, continental European uh, membership of, of, our, of our research community. And I would hope that would you know, be reflected the, the other way as well. Because what one can see, come back to what I was saying about the change in the nature of the economy, is that the university sector is now extremely important actually to the economic and commercial underpinning of society. So there is a link there, uh, which seems to me to be, have good foundations on, on which we should uh, try uh, to build. Norbert mentioned uh, foreign policy cooperation, and I agree with him that this is an area where I think there is, uh, there is real potential promise. To be frank, UK leverage in this area is actually a bit stronger uh, than it is, I'm afraid, in the, in the, the area of uh, EU law. Uh, we do make a contribution of a kind both to security and to foreign policy cooperation and to defensive values, um, which uh, I think um, will be missed in the European Union. So I do very much hope that what uh, he was saying about uh, bilateral cooperation, and indeed the three seems to me to be a more likely formula in the end, uh, with others um, will actually become um, not a obviously a legally based part of uh, EU decision making in foreign policy uh, not European Council based but nevertheless a serious contribution there too and a lot of that depends on will no, you can have a very you can have it on a basis of the UK can be consulted and then we'll decide uh, or you can have it on a rather more organic and more genuine consultative basis in which the decision really does you know, reflect uh, what the UK is also saying. I think a lot of that has to do with you know, how we approach each other, and that's where I, I worry about the kind of, of um, language that may pass between us in the next 12 months. And one of the things that I think it would be very helpful, therefore, to do is to try to develop the foreign policy side alongside and not wait until it's all done, not wait until we've had our row over the EU relationship, but try and develop some of the positive parts of the relationship at the same time. And there, perhaps, I hope we can look to Germany to be an encouragement uh, on, the, on the EU end. Um, I just want to say one other thing, uh, which is uh, very much in our minds because of uh, what happened over the weekend in Streatham, um, uh, policing, counter-terrorism, um, Another very important part of our membership for the EU, for the UK, actually I think important to other uh, member states, difficult in the sense that it's based on EU law by and large, whether it's Europol or, or the, um, what do you call it, the, the um, let's forget its name, the arrest warrant, 
uh, and, the, and some of the features of border security, airport, airport security, airline security, all of those things to which actually the UK has been uh, a prime leader. Um, there are real losses for both sides, I think, if we don't find a way of allowing and permitting the UK to have really good access to these mechanisms, despite, not being, despite being a third country. Um, and I would suggest that that is an area where the EU should you know, not stick to the rules in the, in the, in the tightest possible definition, but actually uh, himself find a way out. But, Norbert, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, if we don't find a way out, we will find that we cannot get people back from uh, Germany because the German law does not permit extradition. So unless your courts would take action, um, there wouldn't be none. So that is you know, an example of the kind of difficulty we're likely to face, even from our best friends. So what do I conclude? Well, it all depends, frankly. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I think we can have a good outcome. Not the best. You know, I'm afraid you haven't got a lever here on the platform. Um, not as good as we could have, but I do think there are ways, actually, of surmounting some of the difficulties, if, there's, if the will is there. And I do think we should not ignore the likely passage of events and change in economic structures, which we will all have to face up to, and which I would hope will provide the basis for cooperation rather than for rivalry and dissension. Thank you. Okay. Right, uh, Thank you, Tony, and thank you to the two previous speakers for introducing this. I think the reason I was asked to stand in for Ma Malcolm Rifkin is that at least I have a touch of a Scottish accent. <laughs> if you'll allow me, I'll, I will try to complement what the other two have been talking about by concentrating on my own area of expertise, if, that, if there is such a word, which is the economics of all of this. And I want to confront this in three broad chapters. The first is what links the two countries economically. Second, where are we likely to stand on the negotiation of the economic dimensions of the future relationship, because they are going to be critical. And third, what happens to Europe's, Germany's, the UK's influences on global economic events, because they are a pivotal part of what the, the future relationship is going to be, how we collaborate to obtain these international goods that we all want to achieve. Well, let, let me start with some, some very simple arithmetic. Germany is Britain's second largest export market after the United States. It takes just under 10% of British exports. By any normal criterion, that is a huge share of British trade. Correct. It's true the other way around as well. And there is a, even a trade surplus between uh, enjoyed by Germany, but then Germany is a trade surplus of, surplus with just about everybody, as far as I remember. <laughs> it's a sore point in, economic in European economic circles. Second point to make about economics is something that Pauline hinted at, the importance of these supply chains across Europe. When you buy a British-made car, it's crossed the border several times in the course of production. And that means that you need easy, frictionless movement of these components in constructing cars in the interests of both sides. That's the critical part about it. The third element in all of this is that foreign investment 
again both ways, is significant. Some of you may know that the British car industry, which used to be a byword for disaster in the days of British Leyland in the 1960s and 70s, has been through a renaissance based on such famous British names as Nissan, Toyota, <laughs> Honda, and BMW. Rolls-Royce is now a German company. So these are the sorts of things that unite the two countries in foreign direct investment. Siemens is a big producer of trains. Chemical uh, cooperation, and that's before I even start talking about the financial sector. So that, that is a significant part of the relationship. And both sides have a, a strong common interest in ensuring future financial stability. Both the UK and Germany suffered during the financial crisis. Bank failures, the need for bailouts, we don't want to see it again. So the approach to regulation is not just about alignment, it's also about the security of the financial environment that we need to, need to consider. Well, that's, that's where we stand on the, the first area, just highlighting some of the areas of co collaboration. Now, when we start to talk about the future relationship, there's maybe a first observation I should make, which is that throughout the B-word process, we're not allowed to... You didn't know, Norbert. Uh, Boris has banned the use of the B word. Oh, really? <laughs> it's no longer to be used. There's no longer leavers and remainers. There's only, only a people these days or something. What a hope. <laughs> the first observation to make is throughout the process, Britain collectively, and probably number 10 Downing Street above all, grossly overestimated what Germany was prepared to concede. Cameron went into negotiations on getting res uh, restrictions on free movement of labor. Angela Merkel said, nine. We, we saw this time and again throughout the region. I don't know whether it's the embassy in Berlin that was advising him badly or whether the foreign office was simply being ignored by number 10. Probably the latter. Second, we had, as part of these unrealistic expectations, we saw a, a sequence of, of developments including what uh, Pauline mentioned, the, the expectation that somehow German manufacturers would lean on Merkel to say, you must do a good deal with us. What this leads me to is that we, we face lose-lose by getting the wrong trading relationship. It's not as though Germany wins what we lose. Yes, there will be some movement of financial services from London to Frankfurt, probably not in the other direction. But the more likely movement is from London to New York, and that's where both sides lose. Both sides will lose from restrictions on exports, from restrictions on supply chains. So that has to be at the heart of the negotiations. Then there are a couple of other areas which are worth highlighting. One is that there is a common interest in dealing with labor mobility. Germany is a significant host country for mobile labor, as is the UK. Just to get here, the Poles usually have to go through Germany, and some of them stop. So there is a a need to confront how labor mobility, I won't even call it migration, labor mobility is dealt with in future. And then you have the con shared concern about where Europe stands vis-a-vis -vis the global economy. Germany and Britain tended to work together, sometimes with the Nordic countries, to oppose what might be regarded as a devious French approach to introduce protect protectionism. France is the archetype of protectionism. Germany and Britain tended to stand against it. Now, of course, there's an exaggeration in all of this, but it, it's still there. And then you have the, the prospect that Britain will want to remain in certain EU policies. 
Norbert referred to his article in the Times this morning. You mentioned Erasmus. A scaled-up Erasmus is in everybody's interest. Some of you in the room may have benefited from Erasmus. But there's also the, the prospect of a continued British presence in the future Horizon Europe programs for research. Again, vital, not just for European universities and European researchers, but also for Europeans' contribution to global science. Britain has been a major beneficiary from that. So there's a, a long area of, of dossiers that need to be negotiated with care to avoid disruption, economic disruption. And then I turn to Britain, Germany, and Europe in the world, where, again, we see a large number of areas of common interest where we would expect to work globally. Now, I won't get into Iran, because that's the, the foreign policy experts area. But on economics, consider the threats to multilateralism. What's been happening is that American pressure, and it's not just Trump, is pulling the US away from the multilateral norms that dominated the post-war economic settlement. Britain, Germany, the rest of Europe are now working not just amongst each other, but with China and India to try to redress this, to deal with the problem that the World Trade Organization now lacks a dispute settlement because the last remaining judge on the appellate, the appellate body is a Chinese one, and you need three to settle any disputes. So something has to be done to, to deal with this, and Europe is pushing collectively. The UK, I think, will want to remain as part of that push. I can probably say next to nothing about the next topic, environmental, climate change. Germany and Europe basically agree on this. And you as a former in environment minister, well, you, you may have had the misfortune of closing down your nuclear plants but, uh, and therefore having to import nuclear electricity from France. <laughs> but there is a common interest in getting this right. Then you have to deal with data. Europe is pushing very hard on data privacy, data security. Data is the new gold. If we don't deal with data correctly, then I think that uh, we're all going to suffer from it. And the, the hegemony of the American big tech companies, the, the fangs as they're called, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google, this is something that is, is going to be a dominant feature of the, the transatlantic negotiations. Europe and the UK have a common interest in this and getting it right. And last, there is something that was briefly mentioned. The US use of extraterritorial sanctions, the secondary sanctions. We had it recently in Germany where the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was stopped, a Swiss company doing it, because the Americans said to the Swiss company, if you continue to build this pipeline, we are going to ban you from our markets. So what's going to happen? Gazprom will do it instead. It may take a bit longer, but it will still be built. It's a ridiculous proposition, if you think thanks for the logic of it. Europe collectively also needs to consider its position vis-a-vis -vis China, which is making long-term strategic investments through the Belt and Road Initiative that Europeans collectively will want to work to either complement or look at differently. So, again, a common agenda on the global level. So what do I conclude from all of this? Very simple, really. We need to work together. We need a future relationship. And that future relationship is in our, our mutual interest. If I, since I'm co-directing the Darendorf Forum, it may be appropriate to deal with this by considering that it's, it's partly about how we deal with populism. Darendorf once said, populism is simple. 
democracy is complex. Thanks. Okay, well, look, um, three fascinating and uh, revelatory um, comments on this new beginning. One I'd like to begin to talk to, particularly the parliamentarians, but all three of you about, is that um, the real challenge here is that it's, I mean, as you said, the language issue, isn't it? Because, you know, 50 years from now, it'll all be fine. One way, or one hopes it'll all be fine. But to get from here, even 50 weeks out, still left, till less 50 <laughs> years out, lies the question of, is this the language of the fought and messy divorce, or the language of people who still want to get on after the breakup, and everything to be best of all possible worlds for everybody and everything concerned. Now, I know it's never going to be quite either end of those spectrum, but I fear the tone of the evening so far is that there's a slight sense that it's going to be at the shambolic, aggravated, messy divorce end of the spectrum, or am I picking this? And that, then if that happened, it would be damaging. Is that right? Have I, picked, have I heard that correctly? Absolutely. So I'd at least there is then a danger uh, that, that the language creates political reality yep. uh, and, and that it then will damage the necessity of, of doing cooperation uh, in the mutual interest. There is a danger. I think, and we have to be aware of that danger, uh, I think in, in a way, tactical language uh, addressing the audience uh, is, is, is how politicians sometimes behave. So it's not, it's not that a surprise at all, I would say. However, uh, not addressing what, for example, you have just outlined, that there is a need for cooperation. And if we, uh, if we did so over months and a long time, only addressing the negative, walking away, this is my red line, uh, uh, or from the European side, uh, to convey a certain punitive uh, mm. element in, into this conversation would be the exact opposite of what is really needed in our mutual interest. And the danger that language uh, is, is, in a way, at the heart of politics and framing people's mind, I think we should not underestimate that danger. Pauline Neville-Jones, you'll have heard your share, as everybody in Britain will have, um, vibrant language. Mm. Do you well, I agree with that analysis? I mean, I agree exactly with, with, with what Norbert has said. Uh, you know, we need the cooperation, and, you know, the agenda spelled out here, I mean, demonstrates that. I think we're on different agendas. I don't actually think this is the road we're going down at the moment. Mm. Uh, I think we... Uh, I don't... I have to say, I don't admire the way either side negotiated the first, mm -hmm. the first round. I do not admire, actually, the way the EU played its hand. Uh, I certainly don't admire the way we did. Um... But I'm, and I'm, we're on, I think, you know, the same, uh, the same um, uh, we're talking different language. Uh, the EU seeks its leverage through, you know, adhere to the rules. Um, this is the single market, this is the customs union, these are the rules. If you want to trade with us, you've got to obey our rules. And the UK is saying, don't care about your rules. Mm -hmm. Don't care. No, it's our fish. Um, <laughs> we'll come on to those later. That's right. I mean, no, this is, this is, this is, no, this is not 
this isn't the framework for dialogue. It's a framework for a hell of an argument about what we're going to talk about and how we're going to talk about it. And I fear, you know, that that is how we're going to start out. Now, whether at some point there'll be a change of direction, hmm, well, might hope so, but I'm not confident. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think we may end up in this, you know, Canada, if we're lucky, and Australia if we're not position. And I do think, you know, that is more likely at the moment than all the stuff that we've heard about how we need to do this and do that. Sure, Ian won't yeah. want to explain the Australia relationship, which is a new one, really, isn't it? A British public policy discourse. But, it's WTO. Uh, yes, yeah, sorry, I thought, mm. I thought, thank you. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and Ian, I mean, is there any hope, I mean, you've watched these negotiations and as an academic from the outside, that, that the need to appease internal, so in the UK, and I'm sure this is true in the EU as well, within country messaging, can, how is there a way of sort of dealing with that across boundaries so that it isn't always about appealing back to your own people in your, or your own hardliners in your own country? Because that's, that's where it all comes down, what it all comes down to, isn't it? Well, let me try to inject a note of optimism, just to, just to even though it's the dog days of February, <coughs> with the following two points. The first is that for the Brexiteers, they've got the big prize. The big prize was withdrawal. Once withdrawal's done, there is a, an argument that you can move on to thinking about the future because withdrawal has been dogging British politics not just for the last four years since the referendum, but for a long time before that. It's, a, it's done. It's, it's over for the indefinite future. Therefore, there's no longer that question lingering in the background of could there be a way of undoing the Brexit, of countering the referendum vote, having enough, another referendum, all these things. And that may just allow us to concentrate minds. I'm I know I'm being maybe uh, conglossingly optim optimistic in this. The second thing to say is that there is at least likely to be an element of learning by doing, by looking at the mistakes of the first round of negotiations. The, the articulation very early on at the Lancaster House speech by Theresa May of very strict red lines which closed off negotiating space. That was a clear mistake. That from the EU side, it was maybe trying to dominate the timetable and the sequencing so much in a way that was counterproductive. There's also the personalities involved. I have not, never been a great fan of Boris, but I'd say this for him, that he clearly seems to have got on far better with the, the, the crucial European leaders than Theresa May ever did. And that may alter the chemistry of the negotiations in a way that we really don't yet know is going to happen. So that's, that's my two elements of optimism. Before I, can, I, can I just comment yes, on of that? Course, I, mean, I think the chemistry of personalities is important. Uh, and no, Boris is full of surprises, so he might surprise us. <laughs> Uh, where I worry is, you know, Theresa May, you're quite right to say uh, she put down some red lines which made life a lot more difficult. Uh, but she then tried, having done that, to stick actually to, to minimize the impact of Brexit. Uh, you know, by, by saying, yes, well, we are going to make, remain aligned. We are going to remain aligned. And that's, you know, that's been thrown out of the window. And I think we should be clear-sighted clear about it. I think he means it. Uh, so... Uh, and I think the, the Brexit camp, um, how powerful are they, good question. Um, 
But I think there will be quite a strong tendency, even if the Brexit camp itself isn't as powerful, there will be a strong tendency, if I read the parliamentary situation correctly, for the, the Tory party to stick together for quite a long time uh, in the early stages. They're not going to. Mm. No, they're not going to back off the victory. They're not going to back off their prime minister who won them this great, this great uh, uh, sway the votes in the north. And there is going to be a lot on the, on the, on the uh, domestic agenda, which is going to be popular. He's going to take care of that. Uh, I mean, this is going to be a spending government. Uh, so I think that he will, he will manage to maintain the, you know, the, the, uh, the lead uh, and the initiative uh, in, in domestic parliamentary terms. So um, he's not going to be seen as being on the losing end. And I think he will feel that he can afford to have this argument. So I'm, I'm, and that's why Norbert Amato may say, so I, w I want to try and get a another parallel agenda going of a kind oh, yeah, that you were it, talking about. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you, yeah. you're both parliamentarians, mm. and parliaments have, I mean, whether you're you know, in the elected part of parliament or an appointed part of parliament, um, an opportunity... It's a minor to, difference, I, I suppose. Just yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sort of, thought I'd just for the avoidance of doubt. Um, both, <laughs> We're going to disappear in due course, I can no, no, assure no, no, you. No, no, no. <laughs> but the point is, Parliament can act, and Parliament has committees that can... Both, mm -hmm. You're both members, distinguished members of committees, and they often are much more depoliticised, even in the UK, parliamentary committees and Lords' committees particularly, are completely depoliticised or nearly depoliticised. So is there a hope that parliaments, the two respective parliaments, can act as a break on the um, spicier end of the way this could go, the least, you know, the, the more aggressive way? Yes, of course. We can raise our voice and I would say this exactly is the reason why the two of us have done so today. Um, I'm also quite critical uh, time and again on, on German foreign policy and, and how we perform and so on. I have to say that regarding this particular case, I think Germany and German politics and politicians I really do expect them to assume an entirely pragmatic, constructive, positive tone. There is no, of course, I would say a, a big, big majority considers Brexit to be a, 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 a mistake by historic uh, measures, and we can't understand how a, a, a people can vote for leaving, particularly in these times, but there is no negative sentiment left. I think we, we want to grasp opportunities and, and shape it positively. So I think there is not a major problem in, in Germany. Uh, however, there might be more uh, than it was in the past when it came to the, the Brexit decision, there might be uh, more differences and nuances within the European yeah, camp sure. than before. Sure. So they, I think there is no sentiment of revenge and punish, punishment. It, it's, it's nearly not existing in, in Germany. Uh, and so we have to contribute to, to, in, to, to forging a sensible European line. Because, if I may use uh, the opportunity to contradict, again, your optimism, <laughs> um, um, you, mentioned, you mentioned now withdrawal 
um, has been accomplished. You could also make the argument that now what is at stake is to finalize, to accomplish the withdrawal, which means that it's, it's, it's an important uh, um, issue not to follow European rules, not to be engaged in a, in a, in a, a, a level playing field. So to have your free, so now the essential topics uh, is, uh, are at stake. Uh, and this is the one thing. And the second thing which is perhaps also we, we should be aware of is that Boris Johnson certainly thinks that he has, he has chosen the right approach uh, by assuming a tough rhetoric before Brexit, a tough rhetoric on the Europeans, and then striking a quite pragmatic deal. That's possible. And so perhaps he could be, uh, uh, um, uh, he could consider to do it the same way, by being tough in rhetoric and align with the hardliners and seeking a pragmatic solution at the end of the day. However, there is a danger then that it doesn't work a second time. And that uh, everybody on both sides, that, will be, that he will infuriate and, and strengthen the hardline camp perhaps among the Europeans, and that the face-saving pragmatic solution uh, is, put in, is, is, is jeopardized by, by this approach. So I think we have... Uh, so, and, and this is another argument why, why parliamentarians, I think, should raise their voices, should cooperate... Uh, also in this period of uh, executive and governmental uh, negotiations and bring in their uh, uh, urgency for, for acting in a pragmatic uh, uh, way which does not uh, fight the fights of the past but tries to do something good for the future. Mm. I think there is a there's space for parliamentarian activity. And in the UK, do you think UK Parliament can act as a sort of moderator or at least an overseer of the view from a moderate position? Or have the, uh, the last I'm, two years I'm, damaged I'm, that? I wish I thought that was the case. I mean, just at the technical level, the, the government has passed legislation of the kind that actually doesn't any longer sure. give Parliament much of an oversight of the negotiation. Yeah. That's the first yeah. thing to say. Uh, Secondly, is with the big, with the big conservative majority, as I said, you know, this is a young party with lots of new MPs yeah. who are not actually going to go and stuff the leadership in the face as their first act. Uh, so you know, you're going to get followership for quite a long time. There will be arguments, I'm sure, but uh, with the opposite, neither opposition party has a leader at the moment. I mean, the prime minister can do more or less what he wants. Uh, that'll change. Nevertheless, it'll take time. You know, and then the numbers aren't on the side of, of, you know, of, of the opposition. So um, I've no doubt there will be argument. I mean, you know, um, and I think, I think uh, Parliament's dander is up, yes. So this isn't going to be a peaceful period, I don't think. Um, but you know, the Prime Minister's voice carries very, very, very loudly. What I do think is, is that... Um, what the Prime Minister is not prepared to do, I think, is to advance in these negotiations uh, with a sort of assumed obligation to obey the rules. I think that's what he's really biffing at. Because um, there will be areas where we will align. Mm. Um, but he's not going to have it as a matter of obligation. This is going to be the UK's choice. And as he tells us, you know, grandly, some of them will be even better. Mm. Um, 
But I think there will be alignment in certain areas. So that remains to be seen, you know, exactly which ones, which ones the government uh, chooses and where it chooses uh, not to do so. And that's not entirely clear yet. Um, so I don't think everything is going to be very, very difficult. Um, but whether in the end there will be enough of a corpus actually to have this Canada-style agreement rather than any other, or even or something you know, rather, rather you know, high-grade Canada-style, um, uh, I think that, that's what remains to be seen. Um, and uh, um, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure that how we start out will tell us much about that. I think, you, I think there may well be, you know, when, when July comes or post-July, they really will have to you know, settle down and think you know, exactly what they do want by the end of the year. And by then, there will have been quite a big debate also, uh, and, and pressure also from CBI and you know, all the bodies, yeah. that, such that the government is going to have to be influenced at the moment. You know, I mean, I wouldn't want to be a British farmer today, given what I've heard about, about um, you know, the kind of uh, proposals that may be on, on, on farming. So there's, we have, we've got an internal debate to have in this country. Okay, I'm going to come to the audience. I just want to ask Ian, he's the economist here. I mean, some of these economic consequences, I mean, not a single one of them has directly affected any citizen of the EU 27 or the UK thus far. There's been some slow movement since 2016, less investment. Actually, trade is up, but complicatedly. But if there were, um, if, if some of the economic consequences of Brexit were to feed through in reality, let's just in the UK or in one or other of the EU countries, parking the fisheries industry yet again, which you know, is a major determinant of all of this, obviously. Do um, you think that would begin to change the politics of it, the, a real economic impact rather than an invisible one? I, I don't think it would be an aggregate economic impact. I think it would be a... I mean sectorally. I do mean sectorally. I, I'm going to answer your question differently. Yeah, I, I don't think it would be an aggregate sectoral one for the EU as a whole, it would be much more localised. Yes, what I mean, but it is the, it is the impact, the I'm sorry, I didn't explain myself clearly, it's my fault, the, that the, some of the impacts would appear in a sector and therefore in places that would begin to produce a political response, because there'd be none of that really so far anywhere, has there, because nothing's happened so far, you know, everything's still aligned, we're still effectively having left the EU all the laws the same, all the economy. So it's when an effect, an effect fed through to a sector in a place, mm -hmm. be it in the UK or in the EU 27, would that suddenly produce a dose of reality, do you think, into the political system? Yes, and the reason I say it's going to be localised is that if you look at what's, what's in prospect for Ireland, especially in a no-deal scenario, Ireland is really in desperate trouble if there's no deal because it, its trade goes through the United Kingdom. And they're already trying to set up uh, connections to northern Spanish ports and French ports, but that will take a long time. So that direct impact will mm -hmm. be there. Mm -hmm. I think as well that we, we need to consider that Brexit only happened 20 minutes ago. Yeah. We haven't yet seen no, any, any, any significant yeah. economic consequences. If there were to be a big employer closing down or not so much closing down as no longer making the next big investment let's say one of the car companies, mm. that's when the local impact will become profound. Mm. Yeah. And because that's in areas that this time around voted Tory for the first time in generations, the backlash from a political perspective could be significant in that. That said, however, I wonder if I could just come back on three very quick points. The first is that the 
power of the Prime Minister is enormous now. He doesn't need to worry about the, the ultras in his right wing, nor does he need to worry about the Euroskeptics, the Europhiles, because they've all left the party. Nearly all left the party. No, that's not true. Right. true. They've left Parliament. Yeah. Those that are most in the front line. Second, on the 13th of, of December, the day after the election, the moods in the country changed enormously overnight. Mm. I think you, you, you must not underestimate that mood change because it is going to be a significant part of the political redevelopment of the UK as a result of this, unless the sorts of things we've just been talking about arise. And, and what is the mood change? What, that it now is a unified, more unified? Yeah. What is it? Breakfast a done deal. It's, 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 it's a done deal. Past, yeah. well, now we move on to yeah, something yeah, about okay. the future. That's, that change has been very, very prominent throughout. And the third thing I'd say is that any idea that the UK is going to constitute Singapore on Thames is pure nonsense. Mm. Okay, well, that's a good point of agreement yeah. to turn yeah. to the audience. Uh, <laughs> a question here. And um, let's see another question. There, so one here, one there. Do you, want, do you need this microphone? No, oh, well, we've stolen the only oh, Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. My question is for Dr. Norbert Rudgen. Um, I'm very concerned please about... Please tell us who you are. Oh, yes, sorry, my name's Richard Debenham, just an OAP. Um, but... Um, uh, I'm very concerned about the negotiations we're going to be having, um, if it, indeed they are negotiations and not a shouting match. Um, and I'm concerned that um, we're fed a lot of propaganda by way of generalizations about um, the EU. We're told that um, you're, you, know, you stick to your, your, your hard lines, you uh, never agree anything until the last minute. But in any negotiation, it's helpful to know how the other side see you. And I just wonder, what is the EU's view of, of Britain? I mean, do you see us as perfidious Albion or bumbling Britain, or, or are we perhaps quite constructive and cooperative? I, I, I don't know, I'd, and I'd be interested to hear. Okay, we'll take another question. Okay. We'll allow you and the yeah, minister yeah, yeah. to think about the yeah. elegant way you're going to answer that complicated <laughs> question. And have you got the microphone yet? Oh, there's no battery, so we can bring the mic, the first mic. This is the third questioner, we take three. Bernard Casey from Frankfurt on Main and various other places as well. Um, we have now recovered the microphone if we haven't recovered sovereignty, I'm pleased to say. I wanted to come back to the future of Anglo-German relations and beyond Brexit, because we talked a lot about Brexit and less about Anglo and German, which is what I thought we were here for. And I was interested by um, an analogy which has sort of been made by one of the speakers reminded me of when we had lost an empire and yet to find a place in the world and then we were supposed to be the Greeks to their Romans so what I heard today is that we are the producers of science in innovation which we will deliver to them the Germans who are the big vulgar mechanicals who will use it. And I wondered whether there was, in fact, any solution of us being the Greeks to their Romans that might resolve Anglo-German relations beyond 
be an exit. Perhaps she'll pull in. Well, she doesn't speak quite that, but she'll no, say that for say herself. That. Oh, no, you didn't say that. Um, and there was a lady there. Thank you. Uh, Marlene Lawrence, um, a Berliner London or Londoner from Berlin, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, I have a question. I want to take it back to the real personal level of Anglo-German relations. And after Friday, we're now in the awkward situation that I can travel, live, um, work and retire wherever I want in Europe, but my boyfriend cannot. Now, do you see any potential going forward that the freedom of movement for Brits who have he has spent a year abroad on an Erasmus scheme, for example, that that could be upheld or that perhaps Guy von Hofstadt's idea of uh, associate European citizenship could be introduced? Okay, uh, right. Um, I'm going to ask you to respond first to the, when you were clearly feeling oh, right. slightly okay. glum. <laughs> well, I must say, um, if I, if I uh, was heard as saying that this country had you know, the monopoly of science and others were you know, benighted manufacturers, uh, it was certainly not what I intended to say. Uh, I do think that this country has real strengths in this area. And what I was trying to do was to, to highlight some of the areas where the UK, uh, which has a, uh, a difficult hand to play, and in some, in some areas a really weak hand to play, but in one or two areas we have real attraction and we have, we have some strengths. Um, foreign policy is one of the areas where we have value, and I think our, our, our educational sector and our research and development and, and our scientific area is, is another, where there is already cooperation, um, both on an EU-wide basis, but also, uh, I think, not, not particularly, but certainly flourishingly, between, between British and German academics. So my point was that this... This provides a basis for uh, continuing educational cooperation and there's value to our two countries. Uh, it's also, it seems to me, a strength in the longer-term relationship between the UK and the EU because we're all advancing, I think, into a changed economy. Uh, the UK is not, I think, going to be a laggard in that and it does provide a basis for new, new commercial and trading relations, not necessarily ones based on the existing uh, legal frameworks. It provides us with a, with a possibility in being able to develop common standards. Uh, I mean, I, we, you know, uh, it does require, on the other hand, you know, both countries or both, both parties uh, actually to be talking to each other. And I do believe that if the UK doesn't want continuously to be a, uh, a standards taker, it must develop the, you know, the ability and the will actually to also be uh, a standard maker, which we've done in the past and can, I think, do in, do in, the, do, do in the future. And that provides us with the basis for, for um, you know, cooperating on, on, on uh, a, less, a less exclusionary basis that we have that at the moment legally. The Sorry to interrupt mm. you. The implication that a vast array of civil society institutions are mm. going to become even more important than before. That is, the huge number of, I mean, academic collaborations, obviously, but German and British institutions, of which there are many, many, will become the more important as a way of keeping a rational discourse between... And that's the way people. things are going. Is. I mean, power and, power and influence is more and more diffused through society, mm -hmm. in my view. So that's, absolutely. Mm. Okay. Now, do you want to uh, attempt to deal with the yeah. how do 
the EU or the indeed EU. German politicians yes, so yeah. feel free to go for both really no, yeah. view the UK and don't hold back <coughs> no, but, but I just wanted to, to, to ask um, um, for your permission not to, to try to um, uh, describe how the EU or the Europeans see Britain, British politics or so on because this is impossible to, to do Perhaps you allow me to confine myself to a German view. Uh, uh, this is complicated enough. But perhaps, uh, <laughs> but perhaps um, uh, I would say what, uh, what is at now at the center of our perception of Britain is that, uh, that we are now in doubt. We we were absolutely clear over decades hmm. who the Brits and Britain are. And now we are fundamentally surprised <laughs> how, how uh, the Brits and this country have evolved. And I would say, so, and we have not made our final judgment who you are now in the meantime. No, we, of course. <laughs> so, I think we have a clear review of that. Actually. You have a clear review. <laughs> okay. but, no, so we have... So, um, I will, I, of course, it's, it's not always 100%, but I think there is a clear majority um, who are a little bit surprised of the Prime Minister as being uh, now your elected Prime Minister. Um, what... What... In, in, in our view, in, uh, uh, your virtues always have been to be pragmatic and cool and uh, not uh, to, to rely on sharp rhetoric, uh, but to have a sober view on realities. So we have to readjust perhaps our, our view how we see the Brits. However, we remain open. And a part of the openness, for example, is if I uh, tell my compatriots, we have to understand this, it's, it's in a way the national, um, uh, uh, the, the, the national, uh, out, uh, the, 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 the national expression of what, of, of what is the identity crisis of all the Western uh, countries that we are shaken by the revolutionary changes around us, and societies have to, have to make up their minds what, what is now, what is, the, what is European, what are the Europeans now, what is their identity, how to respond to that, that you have a lack of leadership and all these things, and in the one country it is Trump, in the other country it's Brexit, in the other it is Salvini, in Germany it's AFD, you have the divide and polarization of societies, so this is the context in which we see Brexit. But I think, so this is a, an attempt to describe what is happening in this country. <laughs> However, if then I, I tell my compatriots, so in, this is the context in which you have understand that even the current and ensuing rhetoric. But when we approach summer, the Brits and the Europeans, both of them, will see a clear alternative, a crossroads. The one option is, that we inflict, that we mutually inflict harm and create disadvantage on both sides. This is a clear option which is possible for us.
And the other option is that we try to do the best out of the reality which has been created, that we try to seize and grasp opportunities and chances, at least limit the damage uh, which is possible uh, in, in, in mismanagement of Brexit. And at this point, that at this crucial point, the two of us, including the Brits, despite all the rhetoric, will then opt for the pragmatic solution and, of course, address the security issues uh, because this is a pure necessity. Uh, that we, of course, are able to have a realistic view on the supply chain and the crossing components of producing goods and that we have to address that. So that at the end of the day we will come to a pragmatic modus vivendi and over time it will, it will develop and we will then also have a good relationship. Are we tr I think there is, there is trust left in Germany that Britain will behave in this positive constructive way. <laughs> Before you come back to answer the lady question now here, I'm going to put Ian on notice. I want him to answer what he thinks the EU should think about the UK's politics and ah, politicians. Good. Leave you that difficult one. Come back to that. But how do you think that it's going to conduct the negotiation? Well, come back, come back to that. I just want to answer the, the associate, the Giver Hofstadt associate EU citizenship point. Do you think that, I mean, given that that, I would have thought, was quite, quite, quite a powerful dynamic for the EU as a negotiating tool, apart from anything else. Um, do you think uh, that offering UK citizens associate member of the EU would be a sharp, interesting move by the EU27? I'm... Uh, my, my skepticism would more come from the British side because it, it only can be organised by the principle of reciprocity and freedom of movement of workers and non-workers has been at the start of the Brexit crisis, as you remember correctly, in 2016. But what if it were not reciprocated? If the EU simply offered it because... Unilaterally. Unilaterally, because the UK has a higher GVA per head than the EU as an average, so it would, chances are it would, it would create a possibility for people to go from Britain to the EU, but not, it wouldn't be reciprocated. The worst way. No, it wouldn't work the other way? No, I, no, I can't imagine that. I have but that's what Verhofstadt was on about, wasn't it? That's what he was offering. Yes, it was no. what he was offering. But I can't, no, I, okay, can't, right. I, can't, I can't imagine okay. this to happen uh, uh, only in a, in a, in a one-way road. He's going to marry you now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very good. So we have to come back? Yeah. <laughs> or we'll get married. Yeah. Ian, what, what, what should Brit European politicians make of the British political class? If you know, just one, right, one answer on, course, on, the, on the free movement question first. The, the, the current position is that the British position on free movement or immigration is in flux. We don't know where it's headed. I'd be surprised if it changes greatly. Ireland and the UK are going to remain a free movement area. And I'd be very surprised if, if British pressure confronted with airports that are much more hostile to us or arriving at the Channel Tunnel and finding you, you spend four hours having your passport checked instead of the usual three hours, <laughs> would accept it. So I don't expect that it would be that much of a change in the end. Okay, interesting. Well, that's a, that's a, a bet. It's not a statement. Okay. I'm, I'm reassured to see that uh, Norbert is swinging towards optimism now. So uh, let me... 
try to answer your question what, what you should think. Yeah, but, but. It's quite clear that their starting point is an, an unwilling, a lack of willingness to compromise on the integrity of the single market. And that's going to pervade the negotiation. They, they don't want an offshore island that's going to outcompete them for foreign direct investment. But in this, in this sense, the Brexit vote was never for deregulating the British economy or for implementing a, an American social model. We're just, we're just not going to have that. So I think that's a, a false fear on the European side. And people like Macron have already said it. They say that if it happens, it's going to be savage for the British middle class. That's another reason it isn't going to happen. Therefore, and it would be about reassurance. Yes. We yes, don't well. expect it, but perhaps some, to have some reassurance would be nice. Now, I, I have some insight into this because I, over the last three years, intriguingly, I've been approached on a very regular basis by Bild Zeitung for comments on what's happening with Brexit. You can check my, my collection of quotes in Bild. And the, the other intriguing thing about this is the first time the journalist approached me, he said, I'm very sorry about this, but I must ask you your age. So I revealed what my age was, and for the last four years, it's not changed. <laughs> Journalistic standards. I think both sides are going to approach this on the word that uh, uh, Norbert was using, which I'll render into German, pragmatisch. <laughs> okay, let's, on that nice note, let's take uh, one more round of questions. There's one, two there at the back. Okay, one, two, and then three, as I promised you ago. So, one, two. Thank you very much. Apologies for being neither British or, <laughs> or German, but uh, I work for the Dutch uh, embassy here in London. I have a question for Norbert uh, Rutgen about um, E3. You mentioned E3, and I, I just wanted to hear a bit more about foreign policy on, on that. If you um, So, the E3 will be conducted in the future more with, with two EU member states and non-EU member states. So, there's a different dynamic to it than we've had. Uh, and basically, I'm interested if how you see that develop, if you think it should deepen or broaden compared to what we have seen over the over, – I think it has broadened a bit over the past year – but how you see it develop and how it, how it reflects, how it relates to the, um, to the EU common foreign security policy. I would be very interested. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good. And just behind you, one, one to the left from your side. That's it. Uh, hi, I uh, actually work for an Arabic publication here in London. Um, my question has to do with the prospect of a possibility of uh, of Scottish independence and if that could uh, maybe hinder relations between the UK and the EU if other areas within a former United Kingdom become closer to the EU and England may become isolated in a sense within, within the continent. So. Okay, we're good. And as it happens, there's another event going on in the LSE tonight about whether perhaps Irish unification might be more likely now. So you could have gone to that. So thank you for coming here. Uh, and uh, here, yes, here. So, um... uh, Christian Neuling, former member of parliament in Germany. Uh, I would like to emphasize uh, the idea and proposal of Norbert Redken uh, to build an Anglo-German pact, which I would expand to build new bridges. Why is that? Well, I have been living now in London for a couple of years and uh, it took me quite a while to understand one simple, one simple fact. As uh, I am back uh, pointed out, we on the continent never understood the 
the, the idea and uh, philosophy and thinking uh, of the British people. And uh, just as you mentioned, for example, Angela Merkel made a big looking back now quite a mistake by not understanding Cameron, which, which is uh, with his immigration question, which is of course of much more important here and on this island, a former major and uh, great empire, but still an island now. And um, in England, I experienced uh, that the basic, of a, the basic idea of European Union, simply peace and uh, no borders and common value. That's the basic idea of, uh, of European Union, which to my understanding never really reached <laughs> the idea of uh, the people here on this island. And uh, they always thought European Union is simple uh, commercial idea, simple mercantile idea. No, it's not. Uh, just give you an example of my generation. It's a marvelous feeling now driving from Budapest to Paris and never showing your passport. And uh, it's tremendous. It's a tremendous um, success of European Union. And that's why nobody really would like to emphasize the point to build those bridges between those two parliaments. Mm -hmm. Well, I did, my, I did my part in it because I have now two passports at least. So, and I applied the British passport not as a German but as a European. And I'm proud that my British passport reads European Union. That's even important for me at least. So please follow the idea of an Anglo-German pact. We need bridges because I'm not that optimistic. Last remark. I'm not optimistic about what's coming up with the forward negotiation. There will be hostile. There will be fierce. We shouldn't uh, underestimate both situations. So it needs really um, people and, and members of parliament to, to accompany those negotiations so we will come to a positive outcome. Thank you. Okay, very good. Now, we're coming up to the end of the evening. I want to ask, I'm going to come down this way, the tab this mm -hmm. table down this way. Scottish independence. I thought you might say that. Laura, I'm Scott on the panel. What, what uh, December the 12th showed us is that an English Nationalist Party won in England and a Scottish Nationalist Party won in Scotland. That's a new phenomenon in British politics, at least over the last uh, decade or so. And we haven't quite worked out what this is going to mean in constitutional terms. It's heading, I suspect, towards a constitutional clash because there is no, no fully prescribed way of, of agreeing whether or not there should be a second Scottish referendum. In the first, it was an agreement between Edinburgh and London that, that allowed it to happen. Now Edinburgh wants it and London says nine. This is a recipe for a clash, and it could well end up in the Supreme Court. If there were to be a second Scottish referendum, as things stand, it's balanced as to whether it would succeed in a vote for independence. There are strong arguments that are getting in the way of the nationalist cause. One is that they have been in power now for over a decade, and their record in government has not been that stellar. In particular, one, one element of Scottish pride was, was always that the Scottish education system was better than the English education system. No longer true. The last PISA score showed that to be going the other way. That hit Scots. The second is that there is a, a concern about the economic prospects. What currency would Scotland use? If it uses the pound, it's going to be as a vassal state. If it, if it uses the euro, well, that's just not conceivable for Scotland's public opinion at the moment. 
Consider what Scotland's biggest export market is. It's not the European Union. It's called England. And that is a major consideration. So there are, there are various reasons that would make it not a shoe-in to, to agree that a second Scottish referendum would necessarily result in an independence vote, despite the Brexit referendum and the result of general election. And one last thing is that the former Scottish finance minister, uh, first minister, Alex Salmond, they're all named after fish for some reason, <laughs> is, is about to go on trial for Me Too offences. Right. Okay. Um, Pauline, I mean, either of the other two questions, I mean, all three, obviously, but I mean, the foreign policy, E3 question, and also the longer-term Anglo-German relations question. Well, I think the, the, the mention of E3... Um, I, I would regard E3 as being non-exclusive. It's a way of ensuring that the three powerful places, if I can put it that way, uh, at least talk to each other. Um, but I would regard it as more as a contact group than I would as a, you know, as a sort of uh, a leadership format. Um, as I think, I think that's difficult for other members of the EU. Um, and it, and it's. It, it, it's a way, I think, of, of more binding the UK in than it is of you know, uh, being, a, being a sort of formal, formal um, uh, affair. Um, whether the UK can join in in what's called structured cooperation, I think that's a good question, and I'd like to see that happen. Um, but uh, we'll see. This is, this is the, the agenda that I would hope we could explore as being a positive agenda and get on with it. Um, Can I just butt in? Yeah. I know we're mm. running late, but yeah. I mean, but the point was made at the beginning that I, I don't want to exaggerate what you said, but that sort of in some sense, the worse the rest of the world gets, mm. the more it pushes Europeans together, including mm. the EU 27 mm. or the E3 mm. and mm. the UK. Mm. Do you see that as, a, I mean, in a sense that the more challenging the rest of the world is trade negotiations, trade policy, international relations, climate change indeed, that that pushes, this, you know, given their similarity, EU countries and Britain back together again. Well, I, think, I think in the world we're developing, being on your own EO is not, not, not a very safe place. So I think the UK has a very strong interest in, in you know, developing, developing very core, strong core relations on core issues. And we've got China, you know, as a challenge. I have to say, we haven't talked about it, but it is very, very relevant to what happens in the future, is a transatlantic relationship. We need some fundamental changes there. We should, have a, we should have a Western strategy towards China. Haven't got it. Are we going to get it? How do we get it? Um, I mean, I, I want to see, I want to see uh, the kind of cooperation in Europe which also strengthens, it in, in, to the extent permissible with Mr. Trump around, uh, the transatlantic relationship, and the UK can contribute to that. Uh, so um, it's not so much. It's not so much. Do we need to? Uh, what we, there are two things here, aren't there? There's what's the agenda going to be, and how are we going to how are we going to set about it? And the set about it, it seems to me, if we can possibly do it, seems to me there should be some kind of of of, of understood place for consultation with the UK in the European in the European context. Uh, and that will provide, I hope, in turn, a basis for something which means that the, the, the Atlantic doesn't get wider and wider. Because German relations with, with, with Washington are not especially good. 
ours are, ours are variable. But I mean, but you know, what I'm saying is that we do need we do need actually to to, to develop platforms of a kind that gives a, give us all some options. Important. Can I just say something about Scotland? Scotland, just very briefly. Of course, of course. No, I don't want. Um, I think that analysis was, was absolutely precise. I think we should, what we shouldn't forget is that the England um, took a highly non-economic decision when it voted to leave the European Union. So why should we expect the Scots to somehow be governed by sane economics? Uh, now, in fact... Because we're uh, careful with money. Yeah. Uh, well... They were last time. Yes. I mean, uh, um, even so, you know, I mean, sentiment can sway. I think, in fact, the economic, the economic realities are very, very potent in the, in the Scottish case. So... Um, uh, I think that, and I think Boris is waiting until there are the elections next year yeah. in the hope and expectation that the, uh, the uh, SNP majority will begin to fall away a bit. Um, but I think down that road, this business of having a commission on our constitution is not an accident. Is not an accident. I think we're heading towards a federal chamber. I think my chamber is going to disappear. Yeah, I think, I think that's where we are going. Big, but it's yeah. breaking news, York. actually. Hmm? What? <laughs> it is breaking news in UK standards. That's, yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know about York, but <laughs> 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 nevertheless. And don't forget, when you talk about, you know, if I might say so, uh, uh, Norbert, you know, um, we don't know now really about the UK. You shouldn't forget we did this 400 years ago. Yeah. I mean, this isn't, it isn't, islands are different, and people on islands are different. Yes. The Japanese are different. Um, and you know there, there are different there are different uh, reflexes. I mean the Reformation. Yeah, absolutely. Henry VIII. Yeah. I mean you know, top top top. Partly a German project. <laughs> but also also the, the you know the intercontinental relationship of the day. Yeah. So, well, actually, that is yeah. binding, and the Reformation yeah. is a, yeah. a German and an yeah. English thing. <laughs> yeah. The E3. We have the last yeah. Yes. Yes. The E3 the on, and the Anglo-German pact. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Of course. So the, the E3, um, perhaps uh, allow me to, to reiterate my conviction is that the emergence of a European actor in foreign policy, I really do believe this to be mm. a question of to be or not to be. We have to transform ourselves from an internal project to an external project mm. because the world has changed and we have to develop a relation uh, to this world and have to exert an influence uh, in order to serve our interests and values. So how to make it nevertheless is complicated because when it should be the hour of Europe, Europe is as deeply divided as never before. In a way, unsurprisingly, because we all of us are, are facing the, the, the same problems and our societies react with uncertainty to the uncertainties around us. So it's, not, it's very unfortunate, but it's not surprising. So I think the group of the willing and able is not the best you can theoretically think of, but it is a pragmatic approach to address this, this existential need. So there are different challenges to that. The first is fortunate group which has never been conceived to be exclusive, but invitive to all who want to join. Uh, the group, which is not conceived as a group per se, but a perhaps a different group uh, related to different problems. So Libya and the Middle East perhaps 
should include different countries. Um, however, it, there is a general challenge to this notion that it is perhaps likely to create the two-class Europe. So the, the better ones and those who, 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 who decide upon the, the very existential, the leading class and the second class. This is the major objection. So we should try to bring in at least Poland, do everything uh, to bring in Poland, because otherwise it could be easily perceived as a Western project. Of course, it is open to all the others, to the Netherlands, to Italy, whoever wants to join. But we ju just should make sure that somebody is, is getting started to do something. The second challenge now is Britain having left the European Union. You, and, and it's quite expectable that the, 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 the question is raised, should this group be a group consisting of members of the European Union? This is a view. Um, because certainly the, 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 the policy of this group should be aligned to the European Union. And the high rep should always be included and it should be aligned and should not be uh, uh, against the policy of the European Union. My, my suggestion is that it is outside the institutions of the European Union, that it is based on an intergovernmental agreement, and that it consists of foreign policy cooperation among states. So it's not confined to EU membership, but it could also include uh, Britain for theoretical and for very pragmatic reasons, because Britain would be able to bring in to significantly contribute to our foreign policy abilities. Um, but, and then the final question is, are the three ready for that? Is Germany really ready and prepared to do foreign policy in, in close cooperation with other countries, to engage on a different scale of responsibility and bringing in resources in Libya, in the Middle East, or wherever? Is Britain ready to do so after having left the European Union, particularly because of rejecting the political project of ever closer political union, which of course would then include foreign and security policy, which Britain would have never considered to join as a member of the European Union. I have a lot of doubts against the backdrop that I see the need for that. And perhaps, perhaps to end with this, and then I come to the, to the final aspect, perhaps it may turn out that if Britain had remained a member of the European Union, it had vigorously uh, resisted any kind of further foreign policy integration. Being outside the European Union, perhaps Britain feels free to join a close foreign policy cooperation simply because the world forces us mm -hmm. to join forces to try to, to in a way, adequately uh, respond to the challenges. And in this sense, 
that we are forced either to become irrelevant or to stand up uh, and defend our way of living. I think the building bridges approach um, and exploit the potential of goodwill, of mutual capacities, and our sense of pragmatism, which has arised on both sides of the channel in the meantime, I think we should approach. Uh, we should we should uh, opt for this approach. And um, I think um, uh, there is a broad will, and I think in, in both countries, certainly the, uh, uh, so this is certainly true for Germany, that we are ready, and that there is a, a huge amount of goodwill. To, to forge a, a, a substantial uh, relationship uh, for the future of our countries and of, of our societies. So we will go ahead on that. Okay, uh, we must finish now. I'm sorry I've let it run over a little bit late, but I think it was worth to capture these uh, final words of wisdom. Um, I'm not going to summarize this evening, before I, but simply to say that we've wrote, I think we've established in particular, the importance of the language of the negotiations mm. that lead to the future relationship between Germany and the United Kingdom and indeed between the UK and the EU27. I think um, we've explored the need to strengthen relations between the UK and Germany and indeed other EU countries here represented and not... Um, in the context of this paradoxical point that removed from the threat of, open quotes, European integration, close quotes, some forms of cooperation might now paradoxically be easier. I think we can call this Rutgen's paradox. Yes, <laughs> copyright tonight. Um, and that, you know, this, this evening's discussion comes at a particular point in, I mean, you know, here we're beginning the long process this very night into the American election and its outcome in November, which will feed back into this debate and, you know, uh, will make it even more stylized than it is. So I think that the, in a sense, the future of the UK, Germany and their relationship and the UK's relationship with the EU clearly work in progress, but I hope we'll all agree this evening our three speakers uh, have given us an enormous... Um, step forward, you know, un un under the uh, banner there of the Durandorf Forum, great director of the LSE, and, uh, you know, one of the, you know, a German living uh, I in London who massively improved London and British public life. So mm. just like to thank all of the three of you and all of you for coming this evening and hope to see you all here again soon.